0: Here we go. You are listening to Open Mic Friday on Law and Gospel on this September the 17th in the year of our Lord 2021. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and we're going to be responding to emails that we have received. Uh, The first one has Bible study questions out of the book of Leviticus. Number one. What everyday offerings do we believers need to bring to contemporary or orthodox worship services to place at the altar of God before the cross? Well, we need to understand that in the book of Leviticus, there was three kinds of laws. There was a moral law to which we are all accustomed to and need to follow, then there's the civil law that we don't follow today. We have our own civil law. Then there were the ceremonial laws. And it's in that category of ceremonial laws that people would also bring offerings of grain or sacrifices uh, to the church. We no longer are under the ceremonial laws because they were used to point to Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. But our everyday offerings are normally dealing with money. In other words, there are congregations that will ask, what do you intend to give during the year? And then on the basis of your answer, they will often set a budget. But that doesn't mean those are the only offerings to give to the church. In my home congregation, uh, St. Paul's, what they often do is they'll have, let's say, a peanut butter month where people are asked to bring jars of peanut butter that they then distribute to individuals in need. And of course, there are churches where you can bring clothing to the church and people can therefore purchase used clothing at really reduced prices. So there are many ways in which even though we don't have the ceremonial laws that different offerings besides money, are appropriate. Number two, same email. Are our offerings a result of our transformed life, or will seekers be able to conform to worship rituals and be redeemed and atoned from God? Now, I'm not quite sure I understand the question, but I'm pretty sure that our offerings are a result of transformed life. In other words, we have a different motivation in giving than do others. Uh, For example, he mentions, can our offerings be rejected like Cain's was? Well, Cain's offering was rejected because... He not only did not obey God as to what the offering should be, but he had a selfish reason in giving. So it doesn't matter what your offering is. Now, every now and then I hear this phrase from the Bible that God loves a cheerful giver. And I think it's used to motivate people to give because, oh, then God will love me. Well let me show you this important important fact from the bible god loves even uncheerful givers a better understanding of that god loves a cheerful giver is god appreciates a giver who is doing it cheerfully rather than saying oh boy I have to give to church again, and I could have used this money for maybe a new computer project or something, but I'll give to church because that's what I promised. That's not cheerful giving. God still loves the person because God so loves the world. But don't ever give to get God to love you. He already loves you. Yes, even if you're an unbeliever. He still loves you. The evidence? Christ died for you, believer or unbeliever. So it is important to understand that we're living at a different time than Leviticus, where the ceremonial laws demanded certain kinds of offerings to be given as a reminder that we were sinners in need of a Savior. But now we have a Savior, Jesus Christ. And therefore, there's not a need to give in order to follow any ceremonial laws. All right, next email. Hello, Tom Baker. I notice that you are supportive of infant baptism. Why do you believe this when the Bible clearly says, repent, repent? and be baptized. God's order is to believe and repent first, and then be baptized. We've talked about this a number of times, but the fact of the matter is that faith can be given not only to an infant who has just been born, it was even given to an infant who had not yet been born. Remember Mary? heard that she was going to have a baby who would be the son of God. She rushed to Elizabeth, who was six months pregnant with John the baptizer. And when she entered the house and spoke, John the baptizer leaped in his womb for joy. And we know why. Because the angel Gabriel had said to his father, that before he was born, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's very clear that in baptism, according to the Pentecost sermon of Peter, you receive two gifts, the gift of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we know that even infants often will trust their parents so also god moves them to trust jesus christ next one good day pastor i pray today finds you well as you know i feel a turn in my way of thinking as i turn the pages of the bible recently we just had labor day i think back to my childhood as our own area, and always had great parades and candy-throwing and military honors, I remember watching fondly and with excitement as the Navy would march by, flags flying, and the elderly but proud veterans holding our flag high. More recently, we had 9-11, and my memories carry me back. To that terrible day, when I remember saying out loud, God, please help to save those people. Through Labor Day, I remember my granddad, who is in the Navy through World War II, who I would listen to as he described to me as a little boy the kamikaze attacks he survived. He would say to me, Johnny, I only ask God to help me get through this mess. I remember my uncle, who involved in Normandy, Normandy Landing, Korea, and yes, Vietnam. Also, as a career military man told me, when I heard the firing and seen my friends fall, I only got asked God to help me. Those wonderful people are gone now, passing silently as they slept. But I have not forgotten, nor have I forgotten those words they told me. God, please God. I remember times in my life which I also have uttered those words. Pastor, never once these, did these gentlemen say, Darwin, help me. Oh, please, Darwin, get me through this. Not once. Never, nor when I read The Origin of Species that was written by Darwin, did I feel an emotional uplifting or a feeling of love or an opening of my eyes or my soul. But pastor, I did when I read the Bible. So I let people ramble on about evolution. I disagree, but I really believe there will be a time in their life they will say, God, please help me. Then they too will realize Mr. Darwin isn't the one they are asking for the help. Thank you for KFUO and your explanation in an understanding way of scripture. I shall continue listening. Well, that's a good example of why evolution is so ridiculous. And it also is um, kind of an insight for us as to when best to speak to a person when they are really needing God and they're looking for help and they're not finding it in evolution. Yesterday, when we were talking on open mic, not open mic, but rumination Thursday, we were talking about The best place to bring men to faith is in a prison. That's why the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has chaplains for most of the prisons. And those times I was invited, I think it was three or four times, I had the chance to really proclaim a message that brought them comfort in the midst of their turmoil their loneliness, and their discomfort. Next email. Pastor Baker, I had a chance to hear you speak at the afternoon presentation at my church, and I can say these old ears well received your presentation. I enjoyed your fresh insights and approach to the presentation of Law and Gospel. Thank you for coming to our church. More important, I talked to a family relative. She was so glad to hear your sermon and Bible class presentation. She even said that her husband really enjoyed your presentation. And that is a stretch for that church house mouse. Both locations were blessed by your presentations, and I just wanted to thank you for being at our locations. Now, I do have four congregations I'm working with right now, but I'm still available in the evenings, except for Thursday night. But the rest of the week, if you ever want me to come and talk to your Bible class, or to an evening session of members. Talk to them about the importance of law and gospel. And I think that'd be very helpful. Just email me at lawandgospel at lawandgospel101.com. All right, next email. I'm a member of the congregation down here where you recently visited. I have a question that I have not been able to answer that a Seventh-day Adventist asked me. We seem to try to honor all of the Ten Commandments except for remember the Sabbath. Did God set up a specific day, the Sabbath, to worship on? Or just that we have a day we worship on and keep you. Keep it. Thanks for your insight into this. Okay, this is a problem that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has. That's why we call them the Seventh-day, because they believe that Saturday is the day to worship. Now, there's no doubt that God does explain that we work for six days and worship on the seventh. That's found in Exodus, in the listing of the commandments. But if you read those commandments carefully, you will see that connected to the commandments are also the ceremonial laws. And worshiping on the seventh day was a ceremonial law that We no longer need to follow. It doesn't mean that we don't worship, but the New Testament church decided to worship on Sundays because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. And I've been involved in congregations where we have Monday, Thursday services, good. Friday services. Advent and Lent are often done on Wednesdays. And on Saturday, many congregations will have a service prior to Easter Sunday. And then, because people are working as police or in the medical field, churches do have Monday worship services. About the only day that I'm aware of that is not a continual worship service is Tuesdays. Now, maybe there are some congregations that kind of have a worship service every day. But it doesn't matter the day. What matters is that we worship. And when we worship, wow, We are receiving gifts from God because he loves us. Next email. Hi, Pastor Tom. Glad you are feeling better. I have been praying for you. I didn't feel I could call because people would know who I was and then know about my son. So please don't say my name. My son is questioning some of our Lutheran beliefs. He asked me if we had to be baptized to go to heaven, and I said no. So he said then, why do we have to rush to the hospital when a baby is born with problems? What if a healthy baby is killed in a car accident on the way home from the hospital? What about a baby that dies before it's born? He and his wife lost a baby due to a tubal pregnancy. I tried to answer his questions, but I didn't do a convincing job. Also, he said that he was sure that if someone's stomach contents were extracted after communion, they would find wine and not blood. I thought I could take on questions like that, but I fell flat on my face. Please help me. I will be listening today. So, let's take, first of all, the question as to whether or not someone needs to be baptized in order to get go to heaven. The mother told him, no. And I have plenty of proof that that's the correct answer. The whole Old Testament believers They were saved, and none of them were baptized with a Pentecost baptism. So then why do we rush to the hospital when a baby is born with problems? The sacrament of baptism gives a promise, and the promise is that the one who is baptized will not only receive the gift of the forgiveness of sins, but they will also receive the Holy Spirit. So that Holy Spirit is not seen within a person. But as we said earlier, even somebody who was not yet born, John the Baptizer, they came to faith in the womb as they jumped for joy when Mary walked into the room to visit Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptizer for six months. As to the other point, if someone's stomach contents were extracted after communion, they wouldn't find wine and not blood. Well, that is a clear teaching of scripture. Because when Jesus distributed his body and blood, he used bread and he used wine. If you had been at the Last Supper and taken the cup that Jesus distributed from a scientific point of view, you would only find wine. Then how can we say you're receiving his blood? I, I'd use the example from Exodus. Moses is on the mountain in front of a burning bush, but even though it's burning with fire, it's not being destroyed. And that burning bush was there prior to that day. And God was in, with, and under that burning bush. In fact, it's Jesus himself because it says, The angel of the Lord said to Moses, when he asked him, What am I to call you? What is your name? And he gave the name Yahweh, which is the name that God uses in the Old Testament books to refer to who he is and it's from the copula verb to be. And it means I am who I am. Now, if you were a scientist and you were checking out that bush, it would be a normal bush. It was a real bush, but it was on fire but it also was not being burned up. So God can take any element and make of it as he wishes. This is found a number of times in the Bible. For example, who believes that the Holy Spirit is a dove with feathers and wings? And yet, When the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism, the Holy Spirit was in the form of a dove. It could mean that that's how he descended from heaven to Jesus, or John the baptizer might have seen him looking like a dove. It doesn't matter because the Holy Spirit was in, with, and under the form of that dove, whether it was the way he was flying or whether it was how he looked. So we do agree that when you receive the Lord's Supper, you are also receiving the bread, the wine, the body, and blood, all four elements. That's explained in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians 11. That the bread and the wine become, in a sense, the containers for the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And we thank God for that wonderful gift. Because it's a gift that comes to all who not only believe in Jesus Christ, but have come to a recognition that through Holy Communion, a sacrament, you get the assurance that your sins are forgiven. In fact, last night at one of the churches that I help out with, we had the Lord's Supper. And the people in the congregation came forward And received, and when I handed them the wafer, they knew that they were receiving the body of blood, because I would say a word such as, Take, eat, this is the body of Christ, or as he commanded us, receive the forgiveness of sins through this body. And when they received the wine, that also was the promise connected. So once more, we get back to what saves us are the promises of God. And that's the real difference between law and gospel. The law, these are words from the Bible telling us what we have to do in order to be saved. Nobody can do. So the gospel comes and instead tells us the promises from God. And how are we saved? By believing in them. But they are so ridiculous that it takes faith to believe in them. So, on Monday's Law and Gospel, we'll be taking a look at a reading for the following Sunday to describe the distinctions between law and gospel and help you to be comforted. I'm Tom Baker. Till Monday, God bless you.